Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists for artists where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Miai, the producer with our host, Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Grime podcast. I'm here with uh, Dina Brodsky, and our special guest today is Sam Adequa. And we are looking forward to talking to him about his life and his experience being a painter. So, Sam, tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I'm from Ghana and West Africa, and uh, I grew up at a time when uh, Ghana was going through a lot of uh, turmoil, um, coup d'etat, a lot of little little internal wars, and uh, army come, army go, army comes, army kills, army comes, and army kicks people away, and someone else comes and kicks them away. So the whole country was uh, very shaky. You never know what is going to happen next year. The, by the, within maybe four or five years, you have like, three, four regimes who comes in and goes. So that, that was the era that I grew up in. And it was the time where our neighboring country, Nigeria, was doing very, very well. The oil was booming and the average Ghanaian to make ends meet. Chances are you will have to go to Nigeria and work hard because of the oil, the exchange rate is very good. So the one month's work in Nigeria could actually uh, take good care of many months in Ghana. So that was what many Ghanaians did. Or that was what the tough Ghanaians did. But mainly it attracted a lot of the uh, people that we call tough, tough guys. Like when we talk of um, a good comparison in America would be like the uh, tough thugs, cruel, mean uh, kids who really have nothing to lose and they would do anything to survive. But I was the opposite. I was from a very, very good family, but I love the life of different people. I love the life of uh, tough guys. I was a kid, but I was always hanging out. Uh, I, I almost like live a double life. So I will often go to the city and hang out, hang out with tough guys. So when the time came that many were leaving to Nigeria, it was an ideal thing for me to think about. But I didn't, I didn't do it right away until there was a, a very big tragedy, or I'll call it tragedy, uh, a tragedy that we lost, the family lost everything. And I was forced to uh, go to Nigeria. So I went to Nigeria at the age of around 15. And that was my living in Nigeria. So apart from that, my upbringing was always 
no, no complaints at all. They were challenging. By the time I got 14, I've learned boxing. I've sold newspapers. I've done almost everything that the uh, tough guys do to survive. <laughs> the thing is, by 14, I wasn't forced to do those things. But I just had friends who were tough. So I, I decided just to be around them for the sake of developing some street smarts and some street skills, things hmm. that makes you survive on the street. W were you always uh, drawing at the time and painting? or Yes, that yes. I was always uh, drawing at school. Primary school, I was always leading the uh, school into competitions and everything, drawing competitions, art competitions. So drawing, uh, I, I, can't, I won't be able to, I don't know when I started, but the only thing I know is all my life, I've always drawn. To really, really, really go back, the only thing I remember is I used to have a cousin, and he was a, little, a bit older than me, and we were three. And he is older, and my other cousin is around my age, maybe a year or two older than me. So my, my older cousin, my father likes him a lot. So what my father, and he was older. So what my father would do is my father would give him our pocket money for the day, um, which means that when my, when my father leaves home, we are at the mercy of what my cousin wants. So if he tells you you should read two pages, if you don't read, he won't give you your pocket money. If you argue with him, when my father comes, he will say, oh, Sam misbehave. <laughs> So this is, so it was almost like a, uh, a torture, but this is what he did. <laughs> he loves drawing, but cannot draw. And he will, he will make me compete with my other cousin. Whoever wins the drawing competition gets half of his cousin's pocket money. And so what happened is every lunch, he would throw the competition and he will ask, hey, are you willing to go for the competition? And for some weird reason, I always knew I am better than my other cousin. And my other cousin always beats me. So I'm always ending up with half my pocket money. <laughs> you know, your pocket money is your lunch money. Is this is like a good pyramid scheme someone's got set up. <laughs> Yeah, so I was always broke and I was always short. And sometimes the competition goes on until like I will lose everything because my cousin will say, do you want to try the Superman's head? And do you want to draw, compete with me? It was always uh, cartoons. And I would say, yes, maybe this time I will be better. But he beat me all the time. So that's... Um, I don't know if I learned anything about competition there, but I learned from that how precision, how important is precision in drawing. It just became part of my uh, drawing uh, habits that I love, drawing disciplines that I discipline. For some reason, I felt like there's always somebody looking uh, over my shoulders to judge and to compare. So right from maybe 12, there, I was already in this kind of mode that if I don't draw well, I'm going to lose my lunch. So this is how I grew up. 
By the way, my father never knew this. <laughs> <laughs> because the thing is, if, you, if I lose and any tantrum that I would throw, my cousin would just go to my father and say, you know, I was trying to teach them how to do this. And he argued a lot. And you don't, want, I, you don't want your father to hear that. What did your parents do? Uh, were they artists or what kind of careers did they have? I lived with my father. They were not together. My father was a minister and uh, a very strict uh, minister. And my father, my mother was a, a fetish priest. He took care of the gods of my, uh, her tribe. She was the, uh, a fortune teller, a leader of the tribe. So when there are some spirits and um, spirits and uh, forces that have to be taken care of or have to be uh, consulted. Uh, she was the leader who takes care of the gods of the tribe. So she is like a, there's a special name for it, I forgot, but the queen mother. She was like the queen mother for the, uh, for the tribe. And she's, she's, she's still, uh, she still has that position. Whatever is hmm. wrong, she's the one who takes care of it. And my father w was the opposite. My father does not believe at all anything with uh, concerning the spirits. And my father is the opposite. He was a, he was a minister. And uh, at that age, he, he even wants me to never to go to my mother's home because my mother, my father doesn't believe at all in the uh, spirits. So it was, a, I have, all my life had always been like that. The extreme ends, for some reason, I'm always in the middle of two extreme ends. Are you still spiritual today? Uh, yes, of course. I will, I think it's something, but it's spiritual are not based on uh, any um, creed. I have grown to uh, know that there's more to reaching ones destiny there are there are more path to uh, reaching one destiny there are more stars there to guide us through this journey than just my mother's side or my father's side uh, christianity will always be something i really uh, love uh, but i cannot uh, help it than to know that the uh, spirit we we worship are the messengers who came in to tell us what we should do uh, came in different forms and, and preached in a different ways and delivered their message with different styles on the different environments and different seasons. Therefore, one uh, messenger is not the only um, one messenger's way or one messenger's language or one messenger's approach is not the only one that we should look up for if we want to understand our guide. Do you see painting as spiritual in some ways? Always spiritual. Never a moment will I pick up the pencil. Today, actually, I was then one of my students. If I don't think I will ever continue art. The day that I will lose, I will lose that kind of uh, purposeful reason why I am here. I am not here. Uh, I wasn't gifted to be able to show off. I wasn't gifted to be able to satisfy myself. I wasn't gifted for the sake of 
just creativity. I was gifted for a purpose. So when I draw an apple, uh, it's not just, hey, look at my skills, see how well I can draw this apple. Uh, hey, look at all what I've learned. I can draw and get all my highlights right, get all my form correct, or uh, get that apple. But it's more, why am I drawing this apple? Uh, if someone were to look at this apple, what should it do to that person? I don't draw to, I don't draw or paint to get good paintings. I draw or paint in order to serve others. So that uh, serving others guides why I do things more than just drawing for the sake of uh, drawing. Honestly, uh, without that spiritual aspect of my life, I will have the hardest time to, to, to even paint. Because why must I paint? Why should I paint a subject that do not uh, have purpose to read? And uh, do I relate enough? Do I have the compassion and empathy that the way I set it up, it's not the way Sam wants to set it up, but it's the way, if I set it up that way, it will touch more people. You know, it will touch that wandering soul who maybe will just want to take a little break and look at something that could inspire, guide, or bring courage to uh, their own journey. So if my apple is not going to bring courage or inspiration or hope to the viewer, why do I do that stupid apple? So Sam, by the way, along with being known for his paintings, he's also kind of known and maybe famous for being an educator. So uh, you write books and uh, everyone that you've taught says that you're a magician. But before we get to where you are right now, I feel like we got sidetracked a little bit. Uh, right now you're 15 years old uh, in oh. the narrative of this podcast and yeah. just went from Ghana to Nigeria. Yeah. What happens next? And I see you drinking the coffee and I have no coffee. So, <laughs> no uh, the thing is, because I'm from, the, the difference between thug life, oh, by the way, I don't, I wasn't a thug, but I was just, uh, I have to also say that before I went to Nigeria, I was also boxing, amateur boxer. So when I, went to, when I went to Nigeria, it wasn't only about pursuing art. It was, it was survival's sake. To be honest with you, it was totally survival's sake. But the good thing is I had already passed all my exams as an artist in the college I went to. Ghana College, it's hard to explain, but you get your degrees or certificates according to how you perform and the test you, you take. So if you are nothing but you can go and take a certain test and pass it, you have the certificate. So when I went to Nigeria, I had naturally two professions, to pursue art or to pursue boxing. So it was Nigeria when I decided that I'm, I was going to pursue uh, painting instead of boxing. Uh, 
because also when I went, I had a letter with me uh, to take to some kind of companies uh, for commercial art um, billboard. I painted lots of billboards. So I went to the company and the guy employed me right away. So I started, I, I of course, never went back to boxing. But the difference between a thug life and from where I came from, we have a little insight to, uh, insight to the government or to the politics. Actually, the, the Ghanaian president, Jerry Rawlings, grew up like maybe four blocks away from where I lived. So we were a little bit informed or in tune to what is going on. So we knew, of, uh, politically, we knew once a nation gets oil, we know the end will be all the piranhas with human faces will come in and sooner or later they'll be eating up. So we already had plans that we make money and leave. So that's what the whole um, end game or master plan or the idea behind going to Nigeria, make money and leave. So I started working at the age of 15 I, made lot, I mean, I made a lot of money for a 15-year-old, even if you allow me to paint, that's good enough for me. And that was, that was painting billboards, you said, yeah, at 15? Yeah, painting billboards. Wow. So, so actually, there are some people in this world who think Sam is a billboard painter who uh, is still in Africa. <laughs> it was when I left Africa and went to Europe, uh, as I said before, you save money, you find your way out of the country and you go to Europe or you go wherever you can, wherever is better than Africa. And that's how I landed in Italy. Where in Europe did you end up? Uh, Italy. How did you find your way out of the country? Like, did you travel to Italy and never go back or? What? Oh yeah, that is, uh, that's so many, it, it, it will take you two okay. hours to, for me to answer that question. So. Okay, so you end up in Italy. And which part of Italy is this? Uh, I went to Napoli, Naples. Uh, I went to Naples, and uh, again, I didn't go there for any reason but to done to survive. So I went there, worked on the farm, and then later on, uh, I gravitated to some galleries and to some uh, uh, to some galleries and art dealers, and that's when I was introduced to the masters of Italian paintings and the academy, which all the faculty comes to the, that particular guy. It's a, it's a, a beautiful Santo Longo. He has a gallery where he only represents the best of Italian art. So I was with him and I was copying pictures for him. And then some of the members of the academy will come in and give me some tips and classes and help me Perfect. out. So it was also there that uh, up till now, I don't think I've told this story before, but it was uh, once Santo Longo told me, no, Sam, there's a very big show coming up and I want, to, I want you to be part of it. But then I was like maybe 19 or no, I was, I was about 17. And for me, I don't understand what exhibition means at all. I guess it's exhibition is just go display your work. I have no clue how important. I was living like a, an artist. You don't paint and then have a show. You just paint and keep painting. So he said some of the best people 
will be there. And Petro Anigoni will be part of the show. And I want, oh, yeah. to, I want you to hang close to Petro Anigoni. I didn't give a damn at all about, I have no clue what, who Petro Anigoni is. Up to now, I wish I've had that catalog. So I did the painting. The painting went into a show. It was an auction. He had this orphanage uh, situation where painters would donate painting and then he will sell them and use that to take care of the orphanage. So that's how I showed with Anigoni without knowing that I showed with Anigoni. It was years later when I came to the league and somebody was showing some, one of the teachers who lost Anigoni brought a book and was raving about Anigoni, Anigoni. I'm like, oh, it didn't even occur to me that he was that big. I just thought it was just a catalog by Pedro Anigoni. I, and and I, so I said to the guys that, oh, I had a show with Pedro Anigoni and they looked at me like you. They thought I have no clue what I was saying. <laughs> that was uh, one of the things I came out with uh, from at Santo Longo's uh, gallery. Wow. And you did that when you were 19? You had a show with him. That's, that's really impressive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and then, so what was next? I think how I was like 17, actually. I was maybe 17. Yeah. I'm assuming you're learning how to paint. Um, how are you teaching yourself? Or is there anyone actually teaching? No, I wasn't learning how to paint. Because don't forget, if I have to tell you details of everything, to, to, but by 15, as I said before, I had already passed all my exams in an art school. I went to uh, an organization called um, OIC, Opportunities Industrialization Center, formed by American. It was an American college. Also, there are some parts that uh, sometimes I don't want to bore you with everything, but I had gotten their degree already before I went to Nigeria. Then when I went to Nigeria, I saved money and came back to Ghana and went to the Ghanata College of Art. It was an art school formed by a Ghanaian who went to the Royal Academy. Yeah, a Ghanaian who so was cla classical art then. Yeah, he, he, he was a very unique uh, artist. He came to Ghana and formed a school that teaches both the African approach and then the European approach. So oh. In Nigeria, I didn't go to Italy straight. I went back to uh, Ghana and spent maybe a couple of months in, uh, at the Ghanata College of Art. And that's where I got my other degree and went back to um, Nigeria. I mean, if you check Nigerian history, there was a, a time in history where uh, there was a repatriation Ghanaians were repatriating, uh, Nigerians were repatriating the foreign Ghanaians, like what our uh, friend does want to do here. So I went back to Nigeria, and before the repatriation, I was able to get out of the country. I was also, maybe I was also very lucky because I was very young. When they were doing the repatriation, I was almost always able to blend into the Nigerian culture. It is almost like equivalent, and maybe equivalent to maybe foreigners in America. And let's say, let's, for the sake of argument, 
let's say if I am a Muslim, but I have an American features. So if there ever be some knucklehead who wants to send Muslims home and I can blend in, I will blend it in. So that's how, even though Nigeria was repatriating Ghanaians to go back to Ghana, I still blended in and stayed until I made my money and left. And, and where did you go after Italy? Uh, well, I went to, from Italy, I, I went to Belgium a bit, and then from Belgium, I came here. And then, I mean, I was telling you earlier, I've known about you and your work for years. So wh when did you feel like your artwork kind of took off in the, in the United States and you started teaching and having magazines and shows and that sort of thing? The thing is, I, because of my upbringing, or I don't know if it is because of my, but I, was, I always feel I can do anything. Not because I can do, but I always feel like I can work very hard to conquer this. So if you tell me, Sam, can you uh, write something in Italian? I would say, yeah, of course, if I studied Italian for six hours for the next six months, I can do it. So I'm always looking for the means to do things rather than the uh, dispositions that I cannot do. And it is because of this reason, I never see myself short of or lack of the needed ingredient that will take me to the next level. So when I came to America and went to the league, I remember, first of all, I mean, I don't want to mention awards and winnings and all those things. Those things, as I have grown, I see that they don't matter so much. So I will just keep our conversation uh, with that. I don't really, really believe in those awards. So in, I remember I was at the league. Maybe a year or two has passed. And I, of course, I, can, I couldn't speak English. You guys are very lucky I can even explain myself with English language. But when I came to the league, uh, don't forget that at 15, I've gone to Nigeria, I've gone to Italy, uh, gone to Belgium. So I was a very confused man with the language. No language, I, can, I couldn't speak any language. Honestly, even my own, dial, my own African dialect, I cannot speak it well. So language was, uh, language is something that I, I uh, it wasn't my forte, let's put it that way. But the funny thing is at the league, I, I remember picking up the phone and calling uh, Steve Doherty. And I was, so, I was like, oh, I can write an article for you. <laughs> this is something I would never be able to do today. And uh, so he said, what kind of article? I said, I can write anything. But the language is not my language. So if you can have editors, then I will write. He was the greatest human being who changed my life. For people who are uh, kind of unacquainted with, with league history, can you explain who he is? Oh, Steve Doherty was the former director for the American Artist Magazine. So he held the American Artist Magazine for a long time. Uh, the, the, edit, the chief editor. He was the chief editor, not the... And, and did you just kind of cold call him and... Yeah, yeah I said, Dina, looking back, right, and I did the same thing at the academy. Looking back, I was like, 
how could this guy hear this thick accent? Who couldn't even put a sentence together? Call me that he wants to write an article. So I, I call him and he says, Sam, write something. If it is good, we will publish it. I'm laughing because <laughs> I wouldn't be able to do that now. I'll be like shaking, like, what am I going to write? What am I going to do? Do you remember what the article was about? Oh, the thing is, I, I was uh, certain that I wasn't going to write anything they've written before. So I was also indirectly trying to see where the professional, how professionals start their career. So I said, what if I write an article about maybe uh, portraiture? Because I fraud, that's what I like to do. So I wrote a long article and make sure I wrote all the things that has never been written before. And Steve called me back, Sam, we like your article. The editor is going to take care of it and we'll publish it for you. You know, I, I guess I like to think I didn't sleep until the article was published about a year later. But then that was how I became a professional. And I was a student still, very young and uh, proud that I have written something that somebody wants to read. I knew that you were uh, an instructor at the league, but am I understand this right, that you were also a student at the Art Students League? Yeah, I went to the league. Yeah, I went to the league and I was, uh, I was at the league. Actually, with all my training, I again and again, another story. I walked into the league and so honestly, this has got nothing to do at all about who am I or what I thought, oh, I could teach here. By the way, I wasn't that good too, but I, I don't know why I felt so. And uh, so I went to the director that I like to teach here. <laughs> I don't know why these guys they didn't beat me up or take me back to immigration. <laughs> That's great. Uh, did he offer you a job instead? Rosina looked at me and said, hey, young man, nobody under 40 teaches here when I am here. So go back when you get 40, come back. We think about it. And I have no place to go. So I just registered in one of the classes. And uh, that's how I became a student at the, at the league. But there's maybe epiphany, tells me, Maybe the third life is a survival, survival, survival. I was, I never lived as a thug, uh, that never at all. But Nigeria was a very tough country. The only way you can survive in Nigeria is not at all by working alone because on the, the streets are dangerous. Very, very, very dangerous. Nigeria, I was in Nigeria at the time where Every blessed day, if you're traveling maybe 30 miles, if you don't see two or three people dead on the street, you are lucky. So it is a, a place where you have to dress like you are in to fight. So nobody should mess with you. It's a place where you walk as if, hey, you're already a trouble on legs. So don't mess. So when I guess by trying to survive there, Wherever you go, you, you take on the jobs that you think you can take on and everything. So that was more of the attitude that guided me in doing things, uh, more so than how, uh, what my beliefs are. 
Do you feel like that toughness, that street smartness applies to your painting practice? Does it apply when you're putting paint on the canvas? No, uh, painting on the canvas, I'm very, as I said, the spiritual aspect. It's very practical. Think well and plan well, have a strategy and execute well. There are many, many, many things that goes into painting more than just skill. I am very honest, not honest. Uh, I face the reality that there's more to painting than just uh, skill. So I well, never try to use anything at all that doesn't bring sentiment or that reason up. I, lo I love that because I, I, I totally agree with that idea. And I know that um, you had a documentary, which I've seen, and, and some of this uh, thoughts about unseen beauty. Is that kind of what you're talking about? It, exactly. For, for, uh, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, for example, if a model or a subject or a friend walks in to paint, it is so um, small to just paint because you can paint. There is, I don't like to talk so much about uh, spirits and yet I like to uh, make artists aware that there is a, a reason why we are given this talent. And therefore, if there's a model there, a friend there, or a subject there that you have to paint, you will get less. You will get less from the subject if you just approach the physical aspect of the subject. I can paint. When I was at the league, actually, I used to uh, paint very, very, very fast. Uh, I remember I did a demonstration for American artists, and the, the guys were very, uh, they, they, a bit shocked with the amount of time that I used for the a life uh, subject. But guess what? I wasn't that painting for the sake of what I believe in. I was just painting to show techniques. So when I am just doing things for the practical, technical thing, it's very, 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 very easy for me. Painting is more of a torment. And the greatest torment, the saddest thing, the, the painful, the painful thing for me when I decide to uh, paint meaningfully. And most often when I'm painting meaningfully, mostly I'm not always, it, it doesn't go very smooth. It goes very, the only time I can do a life-size portrait within six hours and match anything if I am not thinking. Because oh. as you guys know, skill is, in the end, is tools and materials and ingredients. If you mix them together, you will get what you want. But that unseen thing, that other thing, that meaningful thing, that is where you have to crack the brain. And sometimes what you're looking for is not what you're getting. And what you are getting is not exactly what maybe you think should be the end. So there's always this abstract element that you cannot describe, but you're looking for it. So it, it is that which makes painting very more harder for me today than it has ever been. On one hand, I can do a demonstration within 30 minutes or two hours. 
and they are, you can look at it and have no clue what went into. But God forbid, if you ask me to really paint the same thing, the way I would like to do it, it becomes a total different ball game. Do you know it when you see it in your work? Do, do you feel it? Um, like you're talking about the struggle of that, the, the more direct, simple approach to just matching shapes, but you're looking for something much deeper and some real quality there. Do you know it when you arrive on it? Uh, not really, because it, it, all what I look for is always abstract. So I like to think when I get close, I know, but I never knew if I have nailed it. This oh. kind of, for me, the only time I can nail a subject is when I had aimed for technical results. Because look, uh, I mean, nowadays with technical results, you can uh, take photographs and just match the photograph, stuff in the edge and do this. I mean, uh, you can get a subject and just scale it and do anything. So when it is a technical uh, result that I'm looking for, yes, I can nail it 100 times whenever. Uh, but when it becomes something that I am, uh, I feel like I am seeing and feeling that the subject is not given to me. That is when uh, I, and then when even at my best, I will still doubt myself if I have. So I don't know the time I've been superly happy with what I have painted, but I know I have maybe gotten close enough. In an article I was uh, reading preparing for this, you said something so beautiful and I never heard anyone say that. And I guess I'm just looking for you to elaborate on what this was, but it really struck me. You said, how would you use your strokes if strokes were like words, essentially? Yeah. Like equating brush strokes to, I guess in a way it struck me as like, you're building a, a novel or something out of strokes using them like words. I thought that was really beautiful. Could you explain that a little more? The thing is, uh, sometimes, every now and then, people abuse strokes so much that if you're an extreme traditionalist, you never want to use strokes. And then other times, great people will use strokes so beautifully that you want to quit any style to do strokes. And one thing, I, rem I remember doing this test on one, one of my students. It's a funny test. I think you guys... You can try it wherever. So he, she has done a painting. And oh, Sam, I finished my painting. Why are you asking me to go back and fix this and fix that and fix that? I said, go fix it. It's going to make it better. Oh, Sam, that's not fair. This is my style. And this. So I said, how much are you selling it? And she gave me a number. So I said, what would you do different if I pay you double? <laughs> <laughs> that's great. He started to list, oh, if you pay me double, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. I said, okay, I will pay you double. What if I double the money again? All of a sudden, this girl became her own credit. He, he pointed out all the things they would fix. Strokes, 
most people, most students maybe, most students when they're not aware of strokes, they think it's just a thick pain um, describing the form of something. No, no, the soul is in it. Your life is in it. Subject is in it. Everything that you do is in that stroke. And the only way you can really understand that is just imagine that if every stroke that you use, you have to be charged, okay? Guess what? You will be super economical so that you don't pay too much money. That's what I would do. If somebody is going to charge me $5 per stroke, shoot, I will make one stroke describe 10 things so that I will save my 50 bucks. I will let one stroke describe all the essentials. And chances are, guess what? Literal things, I will say, no, thank you. I will just block that down without doing too much. So we start to think differently. And when we start to see that strokes are not just, are not just there to be abused, but they are there to describe something. They are there to have important. I did, when I started writing, because I know, I mean, I know myself that language is not, uh, I wasn't born here. I learned everything I have to learn in English. I learned it in America. When I came here, I, couldn't, I would never be able to communicate with God. So I brought the same philosophy. It's, I don't want to use words for the sake of keeping the editors busy. No, I want to culture, compose, put together, take away, use very little, make sure only what is important should be left. And even when I was teaching, I used to say, hey, look, because I don't speak the English well, I'm here to tell you what is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, do this, and let's move on to the next helpful thing. And writing, that's also what writing helped me with. I, I'm not here to write. I don't, lo- I don't like writing at all. I like putting messages down that make sense, that will entice people to read, uh, sentences that will attract people. I am more interested in the message and how it is read more than just writing for writing's sake. When I see, uh, I, I cannot put a sentence down and leave it alone. I go over a sentence almost half a day or a paragraph half a day. Uh, could this, could I use less words? Could I use more? Could I take something? And that's what strokes does. I don't just put strokes there because I have the skill to do. No, not at all. I put strokes there because they are the means that makes me edit well, suggest well, simplify well, economical means. I love that thought about charging, charging yourself five bucks a stroke. That would really yeah. be a, a game changer in terms of economics. Yeah. Um, oh my God, it would be an ec- economical disaster for me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be you the know, uh, <laughs> Believe it or not, you will get used to it. You, if your lunch is, if you start to lose your lunch for Sam, you'll be surprised how, 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, like that situation with your cousin, right? <laughs> what, what's that cousin doing now? That cousin of yours that used to, you know, that used to make you sort of uh, give a computer. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he lives in London, and recently he sent me a Facebook a Facebook test or something, and he says, "Sam, you know, I'm going to go through the whole world and tell them I thought you have to draw." And even you've never posted anything of mine to tell the whole world that I thought you had to draw. <laughs> you owe me so much, Sam. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you would end up a really good politician or so, you know, either politician or businessman or the. Yeah. And I, I, and I, I couldn't tell him. He was so happy for what he did. I couldn't tell him, but, you know, I lost my lunch most of the time. And you guys were laughing at me because you thought I was a, a cheap sucker that I <laughs> was taking on almost all the competitions that I was gonna lose in the end anyway. It wasn't it wasn't a very beautiful life. It was like a lot of uh, hunger in the afternoons. Uh, so you literally starved for your art. Yeah, that's I guess so. Um so let's get back to your time at the league, which is actually something you and Marshall have in common. I feel like you both ended up at the league as students in various kind of non-straightforward ways. Yeah. You both didn't have kind of the typical life that, you know, led you to an art education. Mm, um, yeah. But so, so, um, so you stayed there, you learned how to paint, and then did you turn 40 and magically started teaching there? Or was there a... Uh, no. <laughs> Rosina, I think, I don't think... So. Or is that president retired? No, I think uh, she was retired. And uh, I was at the league. And eventually, yeah, I think uh, eventually I, got, I started getting very busy. It's a long story. I started getting busy and I got a job at the uh, academy. But I went through many, many ups and downs and like the artist situation. So there are things that I think everybody have up and down. So I wouldn't want to bore you with that. But from the league, I went to the academy. Um, what was your hardest moment? I mean, if you don't mind sharing. My hardest? Yeah, I feel like this is a podcast about generally, you know, yeah. what makes you an artist. Uh, I think my hardest moment was, uh, I think, 86 or something. Uh, I lost my job. And uh, no place at all to go. I was late, uh, three months rent. Uh, my landlord has sent me a note that he said, we're trying to take an eviction approach, but I've known you for so long that i like you to know, but if they come and hang something on your door, uh, remember that three months, there's not so much we can do. So I was left with nothing. Uh, at all and have no place to go and everything. I used to work as a commercial artist, uh, advertising and designing of courses and everything. But then that brought me back to all the notes I did in school when I was a student in Ghana. Uh, notes on how to paint landscapes and notes on how to paint. So I brought the whole notes up. And this is the advantage about the education I had. It was so methodical, the approach so methodical that you can teach it if you know it. So I, I brought everything and I, I decided to make a postcard and teach. So 
That's so I make postcard from. <laughs> oh God, you bringing back my. I'm gonna cry for you. <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, so I, I did the postcards and the, uh, and I hang. <laughs> I handed the postcard. I didn't. Of course, I didn't know where to go, but. On my floor in my studio, actually the studio where I am now, most of the workers there, two of them registered for my class. They wanted a hobby. So they registered for my class and half of uh, some of the students from the league uh, came to take my, no, 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 I'm missing, I'm missing the part. Uh, half, okay. Okay, let me tell you uh, a, a good one that leads to that one. When I lost my uh, work, some of the students at the, uh, at the league said to me that, oh, Sam, we have a studio on Union Square. If you can come in and teach us, that would be very, very uh, helpful. So I was like, hey, I would do anything now. So I started teaching them. And I went on, I would come in almost every Tuesday, two days a week. I would teach them for a while. And this went on for like three months. So one day, uh, they all, uh, they took me to dinner. And they were like, Sam, it has been three months here, three months now that you've been teaching us. And we are afraid that maybe we cannot afford your fees. So could you let us know, because even though we all work, maybe your fees will be a little too much. And I was shocked for how the effort they went in to invite me to dinner just to talk about money. But the, the thing they didn't know was, I have never taught before, and in Africa, we don't, I don't see myself teaching for money. So I said, oh, no, I thought it was free. I did this just for the fun of it. And they, they were like, oh, no, no, Sam, we can, we can afford you. And I said, no, when you asked me to come and teach, I thought it was friends helping friends. So I have no fee. I don't even know how much I would. And they insisted I charge them. And I oh. said, I will not charge you because when I came in, I didn't come in to teach to charge. So... And this went on the whole dinner. So Frank, Frank Orutio, so he said to me that, okay, Sam, we will make a deal with you. We know you don't have a studio and we all work. So you can come in and use the studio when we are not here to exchange for the teaching. We will still give you something because we know you're not working. And I said, okay, I will use the studio. So that's how I got my studio. Is it is the same one you're in now? The same one I'm, no, the, it's a next door. Next door. Next door. Yeah. Wow. So I started teaching for free and ends up having the place. Um, and the studio is gorgeous. It's mm. got beautiful light and it's got years of Sam's work in it. Mm. Uh, once things open back up in it, I would, um, actually, you probably, you probably don't want random people showing up at your doorstep to, you know. The, uh, oh, uh, believe uh, me, I got, I guess. Uh, you don't want random people who listen to this podcast. Oh, yeah. Once, once uh, a couple of, maybe two, three years ago, I was here with my students and the door knocked. 
And actually, I have to close the door because sometimes when people see the light, they so the door knocked, and there was a big guy. And I used Sam Adokwe. And I was like, I was shaking, of course. I read your book, so I came to find you. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> that could go a couple of ways. <laughs> and I, and I opened the door so wide so that my student will see the guy. <laughs> Just so if he kills me, they will know who. <laughs> so, did you end up teaching? Since then, that's why, uh, if you notice, I took my name off the doors. <laughs> <laughs> Especially my other studio. Whenever I have to hide there, I, my name is not there. The one that my name is in, I'm never there. Um, so, so what happened to the big guy? Did he end up becoming a student? No, he was a very humble, like a big giant. Very nice. Very, but apparently, maybe he was just uh, someone who... Uh, like the book and maybe trace me out and very nice guy very nice but uh, he got me shaking by the way everyone who's listening to this should who's interested in becoming an artist should read sam's books sam what do you focus on in teaching when you're what what are your main focuses this i have this belief we are all sent here to fulfill certain purposes in life or to contribute something to humanity. Therefore, the students standing in front of you just looking for some tools, some encouragement, and some skills so that they can go on to fulfill their own journey. Your journey is never going to be their journey, and their journey is as unique for them as yours is help them with the tools, give them encouragement, help them with where to find ideas. Whenever they are down, how they can um, energize themselves, books to read, ideas to spend time on so that they can be of their best. And for this reason, I try to only cater to individuals' needs. Some people might need techniques in the first six months. Some people might need only encouragement in the first six months. Some people who have so much technique might need different. So I, even though I have these big classes, my students were always uniquely treated um, differently. Unless I have one exercise, for example, maybe let's say drawing of the head. So we all need the basic things. But in the end, I treat everybody differently. My goal is to extract in them that which makes them the best of themselves. And let their temperament carry my teaching approach, not my temperament. I really, really... um, my temperament is different from your temperament. So if someone is standing in front of me, I think it will be actually, it will not be very fair to our maker that I'm using my power or my skill to impose that on. If somebody says, hey, Sam, look, I like your style, that's why I'm here. I will say, okay, the style that led me here or the way and manner which I got here 
let us follow that. I love color, that's why I pay attention to subjects, that's why. So pay attention to subject and develop your love to something. And then you yourself will portray the thing the way it suits you best. Does that mean there are no Of course there are basics, basic anatomy, basic drawing, basic values, composition, and all those things. But they are the grammar of painting. They are not uh, the... They are not the only thing. I think it's, it is more important for people to find themselves. And then it, it's almost like writing. You can say, you can write two, three sentences, and maybe somebody can fine tune that sentence for you that will make more sense. But not to say to everybody, write only this sentence. I hope this makes sense. No, that makes total sense. Um, it brings me to another question because you're talking about in that individuality and some spirituality keeps coming up in this pursuit of unseen beauty and things. Could you, it's a lot, it's a big question, but could you kind of walk us through how you design a painting? Like if it's say for instance, a model in the room, you're about to paint it. What, what are you thinking first to, to go through? As I keep saying, I never like to impose too much on uh, my subjects. Uh, the reasons why I have gravitated to a certain look, a certain pose, a certain atmosphere is what I try to let the model keep. So to be honest with you, I mean, if the secret of Sam is to let the model do the job. Oh. Let nature do the job and you just stay back and tell the world this is what the model did. I don't, I don't like to impose so much on uh, things. I, I, I really believe the world makes room. Uh, the world makes room for new things. And therefore, if each soul walking out there have something unique to offer, wouldn't you be so lucky that you have been offering something new rather than to keep imposing your will on things. Uh, like, I don't know you, Marshall, but there's something unique uh, about you. And uh, the same to uh, Dina. So I would not want to paint Dina and extract that unique thing off and impose myself on it. The world and history makes room for new things. And therefore, let the soul that is in front of you be its own thing and then show the world hey look and look at Dina and look at Marsha aren't they so unique and the viewer will feel satisfied to have seen one more new beautiful human rather than me imposing on uh, the subject that is another other way so I bring all my tools to describe what is in front of me. And because of that reason, I'm not very fancy with, uh, or fancy or so rigid about which tool, where, what should get me what and everything. That's a really beautiful set. Like what, 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 what would be the use, <laughs> what, what would be the use of doing something so technical, but missing the soul? Right. 
Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of that pursuit out there right now, and it's it's so nice that you're on this quest for more. I mean, it reminds me of almost like Kandinsky's book, like the spiritual and art and stuff, that intangible quality. Yeah. Um, do you do you feel satisfied with your work? Satisfied is such a elusive word. Because the moment I say, oh, wow, look at this painting. I can't believe I did it. And say, oh, Sam, come on. <clears throat> have you posted hair like this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Could be better. I don't know. I try to do my best. I try to do my best. Uh, I, it is not so much if I feel satisfied, but have I been able to offer the world something new? So I will drink my coffee a little bit now. <laughs> <laughs> So I think, uh, imagine, <laughs> imagine, actually one teacher, imagine you have the most beautiful apple that you spend one week painting the most beautiful thing and you put it somewhere and it doesn't touch anybody. And people look at it and say, and just oh apple and moves on. So for that reason, I'd rather paint the most ugliest apple that one will look at it and say, oh, this reminds me of that. I'm so glad how you painted this apple. I tried so much to, to be concerned with the other more than myself. Look, I have, as I, when we started, I told you my mother is a very uh, spiritual. My father is a minister. In the Buddhist uh, religion, there are two bodhisattva, and two of them takes different paths. One, after being a monk and leading, being a Buddhist for a long time, will resign from society and will stay somewhere and meditate for himself. The other, the same, the same faith, the other will do everything and meditate to help humanity. And sometimes you wonder, so you become Buddhist for, what, 30, 40 years? In order to meditate to help people you don't know, as you and I are talking today, there are some Buddhists sitting somewhere on some mountain or in some stone, praying for you and I to live well. And then, not far, there will be another Buddhist who is praying for himself. They are all right. I decided I want to pursue a life that helps the other. My paintings, my life, my writings, is not for me. If it cannot help the other person, uh, why do this? I think that's the path I have decided to take. Service to humanity is more important to me and uh, that I can eat if after food, after hopefully pay rent and everything. What else do I need? Why I can't keep my paintings? I cannot oh. keep everything I do. So uh, why paint for myself? And if I have to paint for myself, then I also have to agree. When people say it's shitty, we don't want it. You know, Sam, so Marshall, Marshall actually knew your work all along, but um, I discovered it pretty recently, yeah. right around when 
when I met you, and it's because one of my favorite painters, Colleen Berry, mm -hmm. described you as not just her teacher, but she said you were kind of her mentor. Yeah. Um, and I think that kind of goes with what you're saying right now. Like you didn't just teach her how to paint. Um, yeah. Like you mentor, you, you kind of showed her a path from what it sounds like. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, uh, from what I understand, this is kind of what you do for your students. This is, if I, uh, the day I will stop doing that, the day I hope nature will take off my talent. Honestly, I think uh, life is too short. Um, and I feel very lucky when I meet people. Uh, how lucky am I to see somebody sitting in front of me so different, so unique, has a purpose in life. And all what they want from you is guide me, acquire the right frame of mind, the right tools, and the right energy so that I can be successful in what I do. And that is the only thing that keeps me to teach. Uh, through that, yes, the basics are there. All the grammar of making art is there. The art and craft of creating are there. But the most important thing is you're dealing with a beautiful soul, uh, not lost, but in search of their own path. Don't try to stumble on their soul. Don't try to stumble on their uniqueness. Uh, be the guide that others need. Be the bridge that others can step on to get to their path. Uh, I, I mean, it's when you see how, I once asked my mother, look, if I were to ask you, what do you think about life? What would you say? And she, she kept quiet a little bit and said, it's like an egg. Once you hold this beautiful egg, that contains so much. In a split second, the egg could be gone and you can never put it back together. Friends and students are like that. They, in the end, you are there to help them not to do anything more than that. That's beautiful. I was, I was thinking about what you said about the apple. You know, it could take you a week to paint one and not mean anything to someone. Um, but there is a quality that you look for that would sort of like validate that's existence. It speaks a little more deeply than just technique. Yeah. Do, you, do you have a painter in mind, possibly at the Met or some other museum that, that consistently kind of hits that level for you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate your your whole um, approach and energy about things. It seems very um, enlightened to me. I know what you mean, Marshall. I wonder if there's like a better word for the quality that you're describing. Yeah, it doesn't seem petty to me. It doesn't seem competitive. It doesn't seem like a lot of these more negative traits of humans. It just seems like you are doing what you do at a really high level and you'll just keep doing that and you're in it to encourage people and bring bring people together more than anything else Masha, if i die today right my clients will not jump on the next artist and say oh sam is there today we want to buy your work if anything happened to my competitor 
his clients or her clients are not going to rush to Sam. Oh, because he's there, we're going to buy. So it is so childish to think an artist is a competition. It's so childish. If I'm doing a portrait and I couldn't finish it and I die, no client is going to say, oh, because Sam is gone, we're going to give it to you. So even if I am left out of the scene, you're not going to get extremely busy. You, it, it is very, I cannot explain this enough to my students. The world, the field we choose, we build certain following and they love you because of who you are. And one person out does not make room for more people. Maybe teaching you will say so, but guess what? The more you gather more students, the more one day they will despise you more than anything. So uh, in the end, you realize that you can only do your best. Oh. And this idea of competition, uh, I want to beat this person, I want to win over this person, where does it end? Nothing than a frustrated, old, bitter artist. Have you ever seen somebody who get all the com competition, uh, uh, com uh, com the commissions, and died happy? Never. I've never seen. If Van Gogh died, uh, Dominic Eng is not going to get all the Van Gogh following. If Dominic <laughs> Eng dies, Van Gogh is not going to get all the commission. If Picasso died, they're not going to go to Gauguin and say, hey, Picasso is dead. So get all the commission. So this myopic approach to the arts gets actually the, the least of us. Oh. Um, so Sam, uh, because I feel like a lot of, probably most of the people who are listening to this are artists. I don't know, Marshall, do you think we have a single person in like, I don't know, on Wall Street uh, who just listens to our podcast late at night? <laughs> 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 on wine. Um, but I'm assuming most people are artists and, the, and, and, and every artist is kind of trying to find their way. Uh, but what advice would you have for people who are searching? I, I think be honest in the vision you pursue and then be honest in the mission you want. For example, um, let's assume, okay, I'm just going to make this imaginary assumption. Let's assume that uh, you and I are going to a certain destination, or two people are going to a certain destination. Whenever you get out of and straightway leads to that destination, right? Whenever you get out of that path and try to be like someone else, you have cheated yourself some miles. So chances are you will not never get to your destination if you're constantly following other path. So if you are looking to be happy artist, okay, happiness do not necessarily mean you have making a lot of meaning, but happiness to the point that even the failure will stand up bold and say, I'm so happy I give you the, I give my best. Uh, if you want to be a happy artist, choose the vision that you really, 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 really believe in. If you want to paint beautiful apple, paint them so well. 
I want to look at your apple and know that you love this apple. You want me to like this apple. You, there's something in that apple that you want to introduce to me. There's something about that apple that you know it will make me healthy. I want to feel all those things. If you love apple and choose apple, chances are you'll be guided by the stars so that you see only the best in the apple. Don't we see only great things in people we love so much? How do we even fall for people? Because we only see the best in them. The same thing, if you choose a vision that you like and love and believe in, only the best will come out. And if even you don't sell it, you will still be happy. So anyone looking for a, a path, go no far, be honest in the choices you make. And if you decide to have a mission, choose a mission that you love. If you love certain mission, you are always willing to sacrifice all to execute that mission. And if you fail, the trail alone worth the journey. But if you don't love the mission enough, and even if you don't love the vision, and don't love the mission, you are going to just be frustrated because the idea of, I wish I had done this, I wish I had done this, will always uh, linger or torment you till the end. What do you think your mission is? <laughs> oh, you say you were going to ask me. Speaking of questions that'll make people cry. <laughs> Good job, Marcia. You, you said, uh, Marcia, that's not fair. You said you were going to ask me uh, easy questions <laughs> so that I can go and sleep well. I'm getting all this wisdom out of you, Sam, and I feel like I'm... Uh, this conversation's changing the way I look at things. I just want to hear more. So the the mission as an artist or the mission as a man? Are they separate? Uh, yes, the man who is moral and can afford certain things, and the artist who is immoral because the vision and the creation can go very far. Do you feel like the artist, there's this thing about the artist being immoral. Can you explain that? Oh, because uh, your, first of all, your creation stays on for timeless. If you are able to create things that helps, you could be able to create a timeless work, which makes it like uh, indestructible. Uh, but the moral person can be gone tomorrow. So, but I will make it easy. Let's combine the two. <laughs> okay. Would that be easy? I think, okay, this is my belief. You can say, Sam, you're such a crazy man and you are too crazy to think this way. I think white people and black people are so beautiful and it would take a certain explanation to pull people together. And I really do think People by nature are very good. I really do think. Anyone who is bad does not know what they're missing. Uh, this is what I believe in. And I believe that the future is going to be very, very beautiful. But it will take a certain people from one side to make the persuasion digestible. And this is what I believe the Skin Tone project that I'm taking on 
will bring people together and there's a side of both ends that I don't see from each other. And the Skin Tone Project is gonna bring that beauty to both. And from there on, they will see. So my mission now, or my mission at this point in my life is to really make that Skin Tone Project accessible to both ends. Okay. Can, you talk, can you talk about the Skin Tone Project a little bit? Okay. The, the Skin Tone Project is based on the fact that if you have uh, Dylan Roof, who goes to a church, the most beautiful, handsome, young, white kid with a gun and sits down with, I think, seven or nine people, and then in the end, after prayers, takes the gun and shot all of them and kill them. It is very difficult not to look at this kid and see how innocent and twisted of ideology that kept him to do that. I don't think in this guy's heart that he was born with, he is capable of doing that. But there's a certain kind of ideology that he has bought into that made him to become that human, that dangerous human at that point. This is what I believe. I went to Europe because of the beautiful paintings I saw in Europe. I went to Italy because of the beautiful things I read about Italy. France, when you think of France, you think of Monet, the beauty, Van Gogh, the beauty, Matisse, Picasso. So could there be beautiful skin tones will help people like Dylan Roof see the beautiful side of other people that he doesn't know. Chances are all what he's known of uh, black people is black or brown people is brown. So the Skin Tone Project is to make the beauty of our nuances accessible to all, just so that when you think of white, you no longer think of white. You think of someone with a fair light skin but beautiful nuances, that that will stick with you. When you think of a brown person, you don't think of a brown person. You think of somebody with a, a skin that the nuances are so rich that the more you look at the nuances, the more you fall for the beauty, for that human behind the nuances. When you think of black, you don't think of a black man, a black woman. You think of someone with the beautiful nuances that the way I fell in love with uh, Van Gogh, the way I fell in love with uh, Matisse, hopefully someone to will fall in love with the paintings we create to the point that when they think of those people, they only think of beauty first. The same way when I think of France, I think of beauty first, even though, of course, there are good people and bad people. But guess what? As much as there are good people and bad people in France, I still think of France as a beautiful place. There, as much as there are good people and bad people in Italy, when I think of Italy, I think of a beautiful place. But the beauty is the thing that has been given to me by the artists who take on, on, a, on a mission to get the best of the place. So the Skin Tone Project is to uh, bring the same uh, agenda, show the beauty of other people 
And where could people find the Skin Tone Project? And actually, um, you know, let's say someone wanted to study with you or read one of your books. What's the best way to find you other than knocking on your door, which no longer has a name and saying, I, I read your book, I want to study here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for uh, mentioning that. But you, samadokwe.com, of course, and then the Skin Tone Project. If you go to the Skin Tone Project, you will see all the uh, literature about the project. And of course, uh, Facebook is very easy uh, to find me, should you be confused. And, but samadokwe.com, I don't know if I should spell it, but uh, originofinspiration.com. Original inspiration, and um, they're available at Barnes and Noble and yeah. whatever bookstores are still open, right? Yeah, yeah, whichever books. <laughs> Thank you so much for for being here with us. Um, I feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit over the last months, and uh, you're probably you are like my savior actually. So you were like I was stranded on an island. Oh, Instagram is leaving me. Art is uh, long, and life is short. Let's all. Uh, one more thing, like uh, one of the main the reason for the Skin Tone Project is uh, the politicians are doing their best to help humanity, and scientists are doing their best to help humanity, all the professionals are doing their best. So sometimes uh, we artists too, we might, we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing to help? And uh, when you ask yourself that question, you realize that maybe if we chip in a little bit, maybe life will be better than it's going on. And this is what actually inspired the Skin Tone Pro. What can we do to help humanity move on and evolve and advance smoothly and harmoniously? Sam, I appreciate you so much for uh, spending time with us. And I don't say this much, but I do feel like uh, I'm, a, I'm a better person for having listened to you over the last two hours. <laughs> Give me a lot to think about. Because you guys offered me the platform. Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Outcrime podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind. And we'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. Again, it's 929-267-4830. You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.